So, where were you, Alex, in this episode? <laughs> <laughs> so, in in Singyun's episode, I mentioned that I am embarking uh, on a journey <laughs> to Latin America, or like I'm embarking on a Latin America trip. And then in Gian's episode, I kind of talked briefly about how I was already in Puerto Rico. And then, so not long after that, I actually went to Colombia. And um, when I was there, I found out that I got a fellowship to attend a program on a documentary, a program on documentary filmmaking back in New York. So I needed to get a visa to go back to the States. And... I had already made an appointment and even paid for my interview at the U.S. Embassy in Bogota. Um, but then I found out that because of the Venezuelan refugee crisis, they're only taking appointments for Colombians and Venezuelans. And so for me, with an Indonesian passport, the earliest appointment they have for me was November 2023. And so I flew to Jakarta really quickly. And like, of course, I met you and I met our other like friends and um, guest writers who are in Jakarta. And we shot a film um, in those few days, which um, is kind of <laughs> mm -hmm. kind of um, <laughs> an achievement. <laughs> but anyway, I guess the, the crazy thing is that this interview with Pei Lin was recorded when I was in Jakarta. Um, it was very unexpected for me. This is the first time I went back to Jakarta since 2017 or 2018 because of COVID and everything. And I had not gotten used to like how the internet yeah. is like, <laughs> I don't know. It's yeah. Like I, I almost don't want to say it. Unstable. Right. And, and I almost don't want to don't want to say it that way because it's like people have this like idea of like oh indonesia is like a third world country and so like you don't have internet there and mm. things like that even though like anywhere in the world like even in in the states or in europe like you 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 can still have bad internet whatever but <laughs> because the internet was just so happened to be really unstable that day um so you disappeared from the conversation yes <laughs> yes i disappeared there there are like three times that i appear in the conversation which is at the very beginning um one one time in the middle and then at the very end in very small snippets and parts and ruth held the bulk of the conversation with Paylin. but i was kind of clueless because we discussed how we're going to conduct the, con the interview together you know and yeah but i think i think like this is all <laughs> like these are all artistic growing pains definitely yeah um but anyway should we introduce Paylin? <laughs> yes yes we should Palin Weddle is a journalist and filmmaker best known for directing and producing the documentary Hope Frozen, which started streaming on Netflix in 2020 and is the first Thai film to win an International Emmy Award. It's screened at more than 20 festivals worldwide and won Best International Feature at Hot Docs in Toronto and Best International Feature at San Antonio Independent Film Festival, among many other awards. 
Besides her documentary work, she regularly reports and directs reportage films for Al Jazeera's English Current Affairs program 101 East, including a documentary series on Thailand's medical tourism industry and the drug trade that passes through Myanmar. Penny grew up in Asia and began her career in 2004 as a photojournalist for an American newspaper. She quickly fell in love with video narratives and taught herself how to film video. In her spare time, Penny teaches short courses on video and mobile journalism. Previously, she worked for multiple publications including the New York Times, the Washington Post, National Geographic, and Associated Press. With her husband, she also founded 2050 Productions a Bangkok-based documentary team in 2016. So, Hope Frozen. It's traveled a lot, and I guess we'll start uh, with the fact that the film has traveled so much um, from the film festivals and then to Netflix. And from what we understand, like even the film festival version and the Netflix version has some differences. And we're curious, what was the most unexpected response the film has had since the release? Um, I would say everything has been unexpected. (laughs) Um, you're, I don't know how it is for other directors, but so for so long, I just had my head down just to get it done that I didn't really have a lot of expectation for the film. Um, I just thought, you know, maybe it'll do like a, a small festival run and maybe it'll on, be on TV on like a, one of the international channels like Al Jazeera or, um, I don't know, uh, Channel News Asia or something that is more uh, developing world um, focused. Um, And uh, yeah, so, you know, we applied for film festivals. Actually, our very first cut didn't get into anything. Um, And then, uh, but we did get some really good feedback from a couple of festivals and and we recut it. um, And uh, and then it started getting into a lot of things. And even for, for example, the very first festival where we premiered that had our world premiere, which is Hot Docs, which is one of the, mm-hmm. it's the biggest one for documentaries in North America. Um, we were very excited to get in, but they didn't want us. Initially, it wasn't part of the competition section, which is the more prestigious section and, you know, you can win awards for, they wanted us to be in in this other section, which is just a showcase. And we thought, okay, at least, you know, it's in a festival, but I think something changed within a couple of weeks of them telling us that. And then suddenly, you know, either someone dropped out in the competition section and we were, you know, ushered in. And, um, and so, you know, that's unexpected. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. Um, and then, you know, even at the awards ceremony, they had emailed me saying, hey, we know that because it's, you know, it's expensive to be in Canada. So I, I was only planning on being there for a couple of days uh, and, and then coming back just just for the premiere and coming back and not staying for the awards ceremony because um, I didn't expect to win anything. And um and I got an email saying, hey, you might want to stay for the awards ceremony and we'll pay for it. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's interesting. And so I thought, you know, maybe it's like a new director's award or, a, or some sort of like smaller one because we were up against, you know, docs about mm-hmm. really big issues like Syria and labor rights and Europe and 
just these like really big issues of the time. And, um, and so, you know, I sat through the ceremony and, uh, and then each award was announced and then another word was announced. And then I was thinking, gosh, like, did they send the email to the right person? Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, and, and of course the most important award of the night was, <laughs> was the best international documentary. Yeah. And then they called, yeah. the, you know, Hope Frozen and, and that was completely unexpected. So, you know, I would say like yeah. every step of the way, was I heard just mind blowing, unexpected. Mm. I heard in one of your interview you dropped the the glass word. When you yeah, yeah. So I, I didn't drop it when I received it, you? but I went back up on stage a little later to take photos, and I dropped it then. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah. I was very. It made this like yeah. loud cacophonous sound, and I was very embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> well, that made that makes it special. So, well, yeah, I'm curious in terms of the audience feedback because the movie has gotten like international uh, interest, right? So, like for instance, seeing the movie from like Indonesian perspective culturally, I feel like we wouldn't have that kind of perspective of like, oh, you this family kind of disrupt the the uh, the afterlife because we the majority of our Uh, our societies are pretty much Muslims and Christianity, right? So we don't have that uh, reincarnation I- ideas. So do you find do you have like an interesting feedback from your audience, maybe from around the world? Um, yeah, a lot of the feedback has been really um, interesting. I think most of it, most of it is. Uh, is just how the film stayed with them. And even after weeks after viewing it, they were still thinking about those themes of, you know, what makes what life life, what makes what is death and mm-hmm. um, what is grief, what is love and, and, you know, how does, you know, this very high tech way of um, preserving one, Uh, preserving someone uh, affect the way you grieve, and and I think it's yeah it's I think a lot of times I get emails from audience members who had to go through the really horrible uh, process of grieving for a loved one, and really identified with the parents or parents who've lost children. Yeah. Um, also have emailed me saying they, you know, they don't judge the family at all. You know, if they felt like this was something that would help them grieve or help them hold on to, you know, their children in some shape or form, then they would have, they, you know, might've picked, you know, made the same choice. Um, so, so those, that's been unexpected and interesting, hmm. um, just the number of people who really identified with the family who've gone through that process, which makes me think that, okay, you know, I, as a filmmaker, I have not lost, I don't have children. I, I don't, you know, I've never lost a child. So it's, it, uh, it's nice to hear that perhaps that maybe I've got a few things. Okay. Like I, I've treated a few things right in the film. Yeah. Yeah. But how is death perceived in Thailand is it like a like an open uh, subject to talk about in a society or is it just like one big narrative of what 
death means? Um, yeah, I mean, in Buddhism, um, Buddha teaches you that birth, aging, sickness, and death are all things that are part of life, and that these are things that um, should not, we should not uh, struggle against because it's useless. These are things that just happen. We we shouldn't um, uh, feel like it shouldn't happen because of course it happens to all of us. Mm-hmm. And so death is quite an open subject. You know, I, um, at funerals of family members in Thailand, people really, even at the funeral will tell you, you know, this is normal. You need to let go, you know, right at the funeral. Uh, I, I feel like in Western culture, that would be a complete mm-hmm. shock mm-hmm. to go up to somebody who's grieving at the funeral and tell them, you know, you need to let go. Um, yeah. But it is something that is, uh, you know, viewed as as something that is discussable, something that is uh, very open and part of life. And and it's silly to not acknowledge that death, death exists which is almost the opposite, I would say, in a lot of European cultures. Because yes. when I was pitching the film to to European channels, a couple of them would say this is very difficult because death is so taboo and death is, is something you don't talk about and people are very uncomfortable and it makes people uncomfortable talking about death this much. And so so there is a cultural difference. Um, but I would say like in Europe, it, it was still received really well. People... I think there's a, 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 a cathartic experience to be had mm-hmm. to have such a taboo subject being talked about so openly and so personally. Um, I was curious, when you were following this family um, and spending time with them, did you have these discussions about human existence and the intertwining of faith and death and the perception of death and science or did you kind of just follow them around and then when you started um interviewing them for the the interview parts of the documentary that these topics come about i was wondering at what point did um these conversations come about in the process um sorry alexandra i didn't hear the first pass the first part of the question um you were saying did did these themes come about before I interviewed them or after? Is that the question? Um, I was curious when you followed this family and spent time. Because your background is in biology, right? So doing this uh, documentary, were there like interactions in the subject between you and the, the family? Or are you were you just following the family as a as a camera without any, um, I don't know, like conversation about the, 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 the science uh, part. No, no. I, I, I mean, my, my process is very transparent. I always tell the family, you know, what I am thinking and what, what interests me about their story. And, and they know that there are themes. They're very, very intellectual, you know, they're very intelligent yeah, people. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. they, they know that there, there are these themes and they've been interviewed to death by the news. So they're very much aware that there are these themes that, that intersect in, in their decision because they're both, you know, quite devout Buddhists and quite devout scientists. Um, mm-hmm. So these themes 
totally come up all the time in the interview, even, you know, when the camera's off, we're still discussing these things. And um, so it's, it's, a, it's yeah. constantly part of the, the air around us while we were filming, you know, that these themes are, are, are uh, a big pre presence, I think, in, in, in the entire production process. Yeah. So I mean I, I I agree with you they're very intellectual as a family and I I heard from your other uh interview that you said this family is very unique in terms of uh like a Thailand family in uh, uh, a family model in Thailand. And I'm curious is it really are they really that unique in the in the in the face of modernity I mean in the new And in the new Bangkok with all the technology, I mean, it's not only Thailand, I guess, also in Jakarta when we live like a modern life with a modern perspective. Yeah, I, I, I think just as in Jakarta or a lot of places in Southeast Asia, we have uh, modernity that is afforded by whoever can afford the type of modernity that is available in each country. Um, yeah. uh, at the same time, we also have a lot of uh, things that um, that are also part of who we are as Thais or Indonesians and Filipinas, mm. um, which is cultural or religious or the way our parents uh, have raised us and, and what society has decided is Right. normal and not and all those things definitely come into play and I would say they're unique in the sense that um, they have uh, a bigger faith in science than most of us do yes I think that we all mo I think most people believe in science but uh, right. there's obviously yeah uh, people right. who don't uh, turn to science for a solution uh For the death of their child yeah. or um but this family you know they uh use science and technology to do everything from you know they when matrix was a single child was a single child he didn't have anybody to play table tennis with so you know they created a little like table tennis like a uh, robot that would shoot out yeah. ping pongs and, yeah. and you know when there were too many mosquitoes in the room they created like this electronic mosquito trap that mm. is humane and so they have always looked to, to science to, to come up with solutions for different problems in their lives right. so I think you know that is a perspective that um, is a little different I think than a lot of us although all of us probably can understand you know having this belief in science yeah. as we look at our That's iPhones thing, or, yeah. or talk to each other in a different country yeah. through video. These are all yeah. things that are miraculous in so many ways. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the thing that I'm curious about. I mean, I because seeing it, I I kind of understand the, the family perspective. But at the same time, I was thinking, would this story be, th be this huge without the media attention because they kind of push like a narrative like it's they kind of like when they interview the father for instance there's like a s clear judgment that they presented but I'm not sure whether 
people in Thailand or in Bangkok especially think that way? I think what what caught the media's attention is two things. You know, one is that they're the first in Asia to do this, yeah, yeah. Uh, to to use cryonics, and and then the other thing is, uh, Ains was the youngest person in the world, and when you have those two things, then it becomes something that is newsworthy. It's the reason why I first met the family, you know, because I was a journalist and my husband was a journalist and he was really interested in the story and I had accompanied him to go meet the family, thinking that it would just be a a short news story. But, um, and so I think that's what most people are interested in, you know, what, how did they become uh, the first and and the youngest and, Mm. um, and I think the controversy of it being this idea that's never most people have never even heard of before that also piqued a lot of interest as and then uh, you know i can't talk about you know bangkok people as a whole because we're very diverse mm-hmm. in our opinions yeah. but i would say you know the the talk shows and in the the medias and that you know, the people that interviewed them publicly uh, do tend to focus on these questions about you know um, faith versus technology or, you know, the possibility of uh, what the the real possibility of this uh, technology is and things like that. And so that seems to be the two uh, topics that that, uh, people tend to focus on. Yeah. So you mentioned about your husband. I'm curious whether he uh, joined your project because it was originally his uh, idea to interview this family, right? So did he end up joining you in this project? Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of people in this industry will understand that when you embark on this journey of making a feature film, it is all consuming and you need all the help that you can possibly get. And spouses often get roped in <laughs> to doing one thing or another. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, I think... Um, he obviously ended up doing that new story for his outlet. Um, and then I just ended up going back and interviewing the family over and over and over again. Um, and, you know, until the film was finished. And in that process, uh, my husband, Patrick also, you know, would look over, you know, my grant applications. He's the writer, you know, and I'm the visual person. And so, you know, he did help with a lot of emotional and moral support. Yeah. Yeah. And and for that reason, he did have an associate producer, you know, credit in the film. I see. But I should add that like my parents helped, my sister became the production manager, you know, like my friends, everyone pitched it because I didn't have funding for the first two and a half years. So I just pulled in everyone and anyone who was willing to work wow. for free for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Cause your father, he's a journalist, right? Or he work in a journalistic uh, realm? Yeah. My dad. Um, it, yes. He's retired now. Um, cause he, he's in his seventies, but um Yes, he was a he was a journalist for Wired called uh, UPI for many many years as I was growing up, and my mom is a professor. Oh, and your your sister's background also in the media or in a journalistic world or more like a artistic realm. Yeah, 
my sister's also a writer. Um, oh. She uh, does copywriting and uh, and has also freelanced for places like the Associated Press and the Wires, um, and uh, wrote for magazines for many years. Oh. Well, that's interesting. It's, in a way, it's kind of like a family project. It certainly started off that way. Yeah. You know, it's. Uh, <laughs> When you don't have funding, exploit your family. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you pay them back in a lot of love and cooking. <laughs> yeah. Oh. So yeah, me and uh, yeah, Alexandra. She also uh, made movies, and mm-hmm. yeah, she kind of uh, make use of her friends in a way. So it, we created like a small family, helping her making uh, like a short film. <laughs> Yeah. yeah yeah i totally understand that that um dynamic where uh, i end up paying people back with lots of cooked meals um i'm sorry like my my internet connection is like super crazy and i don't know how crazy the lag is like i can hear you guys but i guess the other way around is completely different um but I'll, I, Ruth can, can sort of hold the, um, the bulk of the conversation, I guess. Um, I, I am curious though about your other projects in, uh, Southeast Asia, because you mentioned you worked, um, in the, f- you mentioned about how, um, things are in the Philippines and you have worked in the Philippines and you spent a lot of time reporting in Myanmar, right? Um, and are you, are you now focused more on, um, Thailand or are you still, making films throughout Southeast Asia, throughout the region? Um, it takes me so long to make a film. <laughs> uh, so I would say that uh, my last, if you're, t- there, okay, so there's two, there's two types of work, there are many types of work that I do. I mean, Hope Frozen's a feature film. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then I also do journalistic um, hosted programs uh, that is more current affairs for Al Jazeera mostly for a program called 101 East. And uh, when it's a program like 101 East, I do tend to go beyond the borders of Thailand and look at uh, uh, interesting topics elsewhere. And I've done films in um, in Myanmar a lot, uh, quite a few films in Myanmar, and then uh, one in um, Korea um, and then there's a shorter kind of featurettes, I would say, uh, in news, you would call them feature pieces, but that's confusing because it's not feature length. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, so like National Geographic thing, you know, short pieces I've done, you know, in Laos, um, in Cambodia, um, and uh, in the Philippines, I covered Tacloban. So, so I, yeah, I would say journalistically, I probably cover the whole region. But for feature films so far, it, it's only been in Thailand. Mm, okay. So the Asia's Math Boom is a part of the Al Jazeera uh, collaboration? Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. okay, okay. And that's the newest one? Yes, that is. That's one of the more recent ones uh, out right now. Yeah. Yeah. So you you cover stories about uh, drugs in Myanmar? Eh, no, that that one is not in Myanmar, right? Uh, well, in Southeast Asia. Yeah, yeah it is. is it it yeah, is right. It, yeah, I mean, okay. The 
Asia's meth boom is it is tracking the meth trade, uh, you know, from Myanmar through yes, Thailand yeah. and into the rest of the world. And do you do you find it? Because I feel like it's uh, South, I mean, I might be wrong. Maybe it's like the Southeast Asian agenda, right? Currently, to fight to have a war against uh, illegal drugs, and does that make it easier for you to make this kind of documentary? Um. I think any documentary about drugs is really difficult. <laughs> right, right, um, right, right. I, I guess what I'm, what I'm curious about because Indonesia have like this, like we have war against drugs. So maybe in terms of mm-hmm. uh, getting um, permission to work with the military, it's easier because the goal is to kind of present how we, how the countries fight against this problem. Sure. I think there is definitely an agenda from uh, the Thai military and the Thai government to showcase the work that they're doing against uh, in combating the drugs. Um, but I would say it still was very, very difficult in months and months of asking for permission. And because you never know, you know, okay. what um, what we would end up filming. Um, so okay. oftentimes, you know, for the one of the scenes where we see um the the military um seizing uh i think it was a few tens of thousands of uh, i forget how many kilograms it was but a, a lot um of uh crystal meth and meth tablets uh those busts you know the, when they do a bust like that we were never able to get permission to go on a bust because they felt like it was too dangerous um mm. but uh we were able to uh after they do a bust they display the contraband uh on the table and and that is something they frequently do for the media uh to kind of celebrate their accomplishment in in seizing illegal contraband So uh, the one of the things that I'm curious about, because in one of your interview with sheer sources, mm-hmm. you said that in some days when you put on your like critical lenses, you feel like storytelling is exploitation. And I'm curious about, did you put your critical lens when you shoot uh, all of the, all of your works and, or do you have like boundaries to keep, Uh, or do you have your own rules to not, in a way, exploit the stories that you were you want to tell? Yeah, I think if we're being completely honest, um, when you take someone else's story and you're telling someone else's story, you know, it is a form of exploitation um, to be. And but that's a you know that's a really really harsh word, right? Yes. And, um, and I, but, and, and I think this exploitation is absolutely necessary yeah. because some people don't have the, the access or the skills or the access to outlets to be able to tell their own story. Um, so, so, you know, it, when you know that your role is already quite, is part of an exploitation, I think what keeps me in check is to constantly think, you know, how do I limit this exploitative act how do i um not make their lives worse <laughs> than what it is unless of course they are you know pe- people in positions of power who are who are 
doing terrible things to other people <laughs> and I'm trying to hold them accountable. You know, they might, their lives could be worse and, and I wouldn't feel too bad about it. Um, but, uh, but I think for people who are uh, regular people who are in my, who haven't hurt anybody um, who uh, are just trying to tell their story um, because they feel like it's important uh, you have to try really, really hard to make sure that uh, bad things don't happen to them. And, and and sometimes, you know, I will interview somebody, and even when somebody says that they really want their story out, uh, I say it's too dangerous. I'm not, you know, I don't want to carry mm. carry that guilt of getting somebody in that much trouble. Or I take, you know, extreme mm. precautions about um, protecting their identity. Uh, um, and making sure we never know where the interview was conducted or where they're physically located, things like that. So, so I think it's a lens that is um, sounds really harsh, but I think it's healthy to keep me in check and making sure that I behave and tell stories uh, ethically. Yeah, and you also have uh, you teach, right? You teach. Uh, you have. Damn my English. <laughs> You have like you teach students, right? I'm sorry, this internet like makes me so unfocused. But yeah, you teach students on how to make documentary, don't you? Yes. And I think is it is it hard to 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 plant this kind of um, perspective in the in the new generation of journalists and like how how to not exploit uh, other people's stories. Because I feel like it, it's it's a it's a it's a hard practice, and most of the time when you see on t- when I see stuff on TV, sometimes those boundaries got you know violated. Is it sorry? Is the question is it hard to teach ethics? Is that the question? Is it hard to implement, or is it hard to teach this perspective of uh, story ex- storytelling exploitation in the younger generation of journalists in Thailand? Um. I haven't, to be honest, I haven't said exactly those words uh, in my workshops. Oh, okay. Um, so I haven't really framed, you know, telling stories as exploitation. This is something that I, I only recently mm-hmm. started kind of, uh, it's kind, the kind of language mm-hmm. I've only started using. So I haven't really taught a class that really uses that kind of language. But I certainly have taught classes on journalistic ethics. Um, And the thing that uh, you always have to be aware of is the power dynamic between the storyteller and and the person who is taking that story and and distributing it or or publicly, you know, giving it, putting it out into the public uh, and really being aware of, of that power dynamic and, and be sensitive to what that means to the storyteller. So uh, it's not difficult to teach ethics, I would say, at all. Um, I think most people want to be good. Most people want to do the right thing, especially if they're, they're coming into journalism. I think what really is tough, you know, um, especially in Southeast Asia right now, is how dangerous it is to just be a journalist you know mm. how how do you even yeah. do good journalism in Myanmar right now uh, there's uh, 
I mean, just yesterday, yeah. um, we have friends in Myanmar who are either activists or journalists who are living in fear. A couple of them have just uh, yeah. been, we were just told that they will be hanged for some of their activities. Yeah. Um, so it's it's incredibly dangerous and it's tough to teach journalism in Myanmar at the moment. And it's tough to teach journalism in Thailand as well, not on the same scale, but it is a country, I mean, all of, almost all the countries in Southeast Asia, I would say have yeah. such limitations yeah. on free speech. So, you know, when you choose to become a journalist, it's really, yeah, it's I really, mean, it's, uh, talking about ethics is, is, um, is easy. The, the tougher part yeah. is how to, how to make those decisions so that everyone is safe. Right. Right. Yeah. Cause I asked this question because I studied journalism like 10 years ago in college and the way I just, I mean, after I graduated, then I realized that the way we were taught was the journalistic is to communicate and to influence. It's more about the audience, I feel. During my time in college, they are more focused about who is the audience, how to influence the audience, not so much so as the person who we get the story from. You know what I mean? So it's Yeah, I think it's always going to be is the story going to be um it's always a balance because if you if you are you don't want to become the mouthpiece of the storyteller either. You know, you can't just do whatever the storyteller says. Oh, mm. you know, I want these words to be out. And, and then you're also being unfair to your audience. You have to constantly hold those two things in your mind. Yeah. You know, what does the audience need to know? What does society need to know? What is best for society and what is best for your subject? And hopefully you find if your subject is an honest, you know, good person and we can get into you know how you make those judgments but um yeah 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 you it's a balance between those two things constantly so you're you're making those tough decisions all the time you know how do i make this clear to the audience is this something that society needs to know and what is the effects on the storyteller so yeah. you know it's it's a it's a loop uh and you're constantly going back and forth ping-ponging back and forth between what is best for each side. And, and also the third part of that equation too, or the third and fourth part of the equation is also what is best for you as the communicator um, and what is best for your publication. You know, in all of these ethical discussions, what you have to first realize is you have to list all the parties that could be affected by your story. And then you have to imagine the best and worst things that could happen if you say certain things in your story for each party. Yeah. And, and that's how you come out with a calculation of, you know, do you run this? Do you use this language or do you use the subject? Do you blur someone's face? And, and it's always a discussion. Um, that's, you never make this decision alone. Yeah. 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 I mean, time has changed too since 10 years ago. Yeah. And I, I mean, in a way I feel like during my time in college, I think, Especially us who live in Jakarta, we have, um, we live in a like a good time period, I guess. Like it's like 10 years after our uh, tragic history. And then there's a, like a period of time when we don't have like a, like an immediate threat. And today we see that 
what happened in Myanmar, it's very close in comparison to what happened in Palestine. Because, you know, seeing news on, uh, seeing, seeing, uh, the war in Palestine, it feels kind of, I don't know, it's, for me, it's kind of far. And then watching what happened in Myanmar, is there is some kind of like, oh, wow, it's, this kind of situation is here now. It's, it's very, like, in a way, it's very real. And I think that also impacted the way our journalists report news. Yeah, I think there are certainly some parallels between what's happening in Palestine and in, and in Myanmar, but it, it, it's also a very unique situation in Myanmar. Yeah. Every, yeah. every conflict has its own yeah. cultural Alex, context, you, uh, right? So... Um, it is, yeah. yeah. I mean, well, I'm just going to be blunt. I mean, for the past 20 years, I feel like I'm kind of disappointed in the way Indonesian journalism work. So I was like, and because I studied journalistic before and I felt like the the way that they teach us were not so heavily on the ethics, but more like how to get the stories, you know, out. Mm-hmm. And I hope I hope it changed by now to see, because of that uh, close reality of the Myanmar and also other political changes in our own country. But yeah. Yeah, I think I, I hope so too. And I have really great hope and faith in, in the younger generation who do seem to care a lot about uh, oppression and discrimination and, and also just uh, the well-being of, of, other humans <laughs> um, and yeah. Yeah. I think it's it's a really tough thing to live in countries where the laws don't support the best ethics the business model of journalism doesn't support the best ethics uh, funding doesn't support the best ethics and and I would say, you know, when I first came back to Thailand, um, I went to university in America and I worked in a newsroom in America for four years before I came back. And and I was quite judgmental. I was like, well, why, you know, why people are setting up shots, people are moving things, people are telling people to say things, you know, in front of the cameras. And these are, these things would get me fired in an American newsroom. And, mm-hmm. and I was... I was naive, you know, because working in the system in Thailand, there, I teach, I can teach all I want that you need to have list down all the parties that are affected and you need to have a discussion with your editor. And, but the time and the funding constraints and uh, the experience level of so many journalists in the field just can't afford that. Like when are they supposed to have these discussions? when they're supposed to file six stories a day, you know, and, and when, uh, who is the ethics, ex, you know, in a, in a, in a, uh, in many American newsrooms, and, and it might be outdated now because American newsrooms are also uh, bare bones these days. But, mm-hmm. but when I was working there, there's a person you can always discuss ethics with, but there isn't such a person that's been assigned that, you know, in, in many Thai newsrooms. Um, I think in, in a few, uh, there, there are, the better funded ones are, but again, it's really easy to judge, you know, that, oh my gosh, I, I, I really, gosh, Thai journalists or Indonesian journalists, I, I wish and so disappointed, 
But if you were to function, you know, to work in the environment that has been given to them where there's um, criminal defamation laws, so you can't say a lot of things without going to jail when you're working on a salary that is less than $500 a month, when you've been given gear that is not quick enough to, to catch the action, so you have to tell people to do things again, or, you know, it's just uh, the constraints make it hard for you to be the most ethical person. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's it's tough. It's tough out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I do understand that and the fact that most of, you know, the big medias in Indonesia are owned by some kind of like, political party so yeah it's yeah I, I, I'm not solely blaming the journalists but yeah you're right it's the situation and also maybe the the education on how to become like an ethical journalist also lacking and that those combined that yeah I hope that changed I don't I don't know if I am I still lagging a lot. I turn off my camera, so hopefully that helps. Yeah. Um no, you but I was gonna say in a in a lighter context, maybe it also depends in Indonesia who we call journalists because like the other day, Ruth and I were doing research on uh, another potential guest that we might invite on the podcast. And we were trying to look for articles about her. And all of these news articles or what what is called or considered news articles here um, did not discuss her work at all. And they it was tabloid, basically, like tabloid journalism. But I think... Um, there's a lot of blurring in in the Indonesian general public, I guess, um, and maybe that might be like the the lower common denominator or um, what you want to call it. But I think I think it's also like there's this public perception that tabloid journalism equals like news, and <laughs> very few people understand the difference. Maybe that might be that might contribute to why you feel disappointed ruth oh when i say like the the journalist i'm talking about the journalist who works in like the big media like the big news media but i feel like now with youtube and stuff and twitter i think everyone can be a journalist you know it's what i'm what i'm was disappointed about was the 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 old uh, the, the the big machine if I can say that. Yeah, okay. I, I mean, the, the way journalism works today, and, the, and I sound like an old woman, because I'm talking about the good old days. Um, but, you know, when I started, um, it really was a lot of um, community journalism, that um, was then vetted by editors after editors. And there's, you know, an ombudsman who would take in comments from the public. And I would walk around communities. And so I was working at a newspaper in North Carolina and people knew my byline and kept me accountable. You know, if I did something wrong, I would get a letter, you know, if I, you know, spelled somebody, misspelled somebody's name, you know, and, and, there was an ecosystem that helped you do the kind of job that would um, change policies and improve the community's lives. And, and that is what happens in a functioning democracy. Um, I think democracy in general has been eroded uh, in 
certainly in, in Southeast Asia, <laughs> but also in America. And, and part of uh, why it's that way is because there is no funding for journalism. There is not the kind of journalism that is, uh, tries to be balanced and, um, and uh, more grassroots based. So what has come into that space are more uh, kind of the public, anybody who wants to start a YouTube channel, uh, and which is great. And there are some really good people who do great work in, in keeping the government accountable that way through just their own channels. Um, but what's lacking is the ecosystem that keeps you accountable. Because if that person says something wrong, you know, it, it's not somebody who is necessarily had an editor they had an ethical discussion with or somebody who uh, you know, will read the letters or the emails from everyone else and take it into account. Well, there isn't that ecosystem uh, that helps you do good journalistic work. So, you know, it's it's a free for all um, in that space, and there's really good stuff and really terrible stuff, uh, and it's sometimes really really hard to tell the difference. Yeah, it's just like the tablet that you talked about, Alex. Yeah. Yeah, maybe some people can't. Yeah. 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 So it comes back to like educating the audience, right? And, but even I'm like, how there are websites that look so official and um, it's just, it takes so much work t- to verify whether someone is telling the truth. Even in the New York Times, you know, the, the bastion of, of, great journalism right there are things in there that i'm like well that's from a very american perspective Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know and or that is from a very american liberal perspective Mm -hmm. and most of the time they get it right and they try and, and there's an effort to be balanced but um but yeah it's it's a really difficult process to to recognize biases and facts it can take you all day to verify something <laughs> when you just want somebody to, you know, who has the time. Yeah. And the news needs to be out fast. Exactly. Like otherwise. Yeah. It's quite chaotic. Yeah. yeah. Alex, do you have more questions? <sighs> I'm, I actually have so many questions. I'm just like, this is the first time that I tried interviewing from Jakarta and it's not going according to plan at all, but Oh, well, um, I also haven't been been here in the last time I was here. It was like six years ago. So lessons learned. Um, I was curious about your, uh, are, are you willing or allowed to talk about your upcoming projects, new projects that you're working on? I probably should just say I am working on something, but I can't say what yet. <laughs> okay. Does it, can, am I allowed to ask if it has, to do with faith again because that seems like um a theme in uh some of your work before sure i yeah yeah i would say like radical hope okay is something i'm always interested in okay yeah i think like hope frozen you know um it's about when everyone and everything tells you something is impossible or something is dire and unfixable or are um, dark, you know, and there's no way of climbing out of that or fixing it or making it better or the whole world's telling you 
this and you still have hope. You still believe the opposite. And I think that is especially something I'm interested in right now because, you know, <laughs> I'm quite <laughs> a cynical person and the world is, is kind of shit right now. <laughs> You know, I don't have a lot of hope. I don't. I, I you know, I, I, I'm, I'm at the beach right now and I'm looking because I have a home here and I look out into the ocean and it should be a beautiful thing. It really should. But I'm thinking that ocean is going to climb onto shore and through this climate change process and probably eat up my house one day. And, and, you know, and I should be thinking that it's not happening yet, you know? <laughs> So it's just, I wake up every day in a panic about the world and about the industry and about journalism. And part of why I'm so attracted to stories of radical hope is that somehow there are people who still think things are possible and things can change. And I think these people are fascinating and, and interesting and, and in some ways inspiring. But the most important thing about them is that these are the people that survive. Because you can't, you know, you can't go on for that long without hope. A lot of the conversations about the process and how to make art whether it's like films or, or literature or whatnot, it's centered around the ecosystem in the U.S. and how things in the U.S. works or in the... What do you mean? In a specific... Right. So in our conversation with Paylin, she she talked about how like she worked for a newsroom when she was in the States and they had a very specific guideline about how mm -hmm. to do things mm -hmm. as a documentary yeah. filmmaker, right? And then when she's in Thailand, like she she realized that like the process is so different and it's something that people in the States would never be caught doing because yeah. you're setting up shots, you're telling the subject to repeat what they said. Um, there are these um, criminal defamation laws in Southeast yeah. Asia. Um, you don't have the budget to actually like shoot everything that happens because um, your team is so limited, you don't have enough people and things like that. And like the ecosystem in Southeast Asia is so different. So so I, I think like after going back to New York and reflecting on a lot of things, I I realized that I really appreciated how Palin talked about how dangerous it is, you know, to be a journalist and to make art in Southeast Asia. Yeah. And I And I've been thinking like, Sometimes when we talk about process, it's like it's easy for people in privileged parts of the world to talk about ethics um, and how to ethically make films and things like that. But then like the ecosystems in different parts of the world are not the same. And like I think about the Myanmar Diaries, um, which is the documentary that won at Berlinale. It's it's about the the kudeta and all of the Myanmar filmmakers were anonymous in the credits, like in the act of killing the documentary about Indonesia and the genocide and the people, all of the Indonesians who helped make the film, all of them were anonymous 
and like a producer of a fiction film in Myanmar was captured. And so I've just been thinking about that a lot and, um, and how, how much I appreciated the conversation with Palin, even though I was mostly listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and not participating. I mean, it might, yeah. I'm may sound very critical about Indonesian journalists on this episode. But actually, there are really great news platforms, like online news platforms for like, uh, like the indie one that have really, really great content that I feel like they have to make this in- into like an English program because I don't think it's just Indonesian people who needs to watch some of their program, but you know yeah there have been a lot of good citizen journalism like mobile journalism from indonesia where people now like can record stuff on their phones and then put together something like what was that it um it was actually a really good informational educational video about um when the building in Jakarta caught on fire, it was like one of the government buildings that caught on fire all of a sudden. Or was it was it during like a demonstration, like a riot? There's been a lot. Like there's been a lot of these um, more independent, uh, um, but, but they post it on social media. Like they post a long reel on Instagram um, and it's actually good, you know, like th- there are good, stuff um and then of course there are like tabloid stuff which we talk about and um yeah sometimes it's like people who don't know how to tell the difference between like tabloid and actual journalism do you know that program i mean you didn't grow up here there's this famous like a a gossip entertainment program on tv called check and recheck no silat Oh yeah, I do know Sila. It's like their content was about, you know, famous people, but they have this like yeah. I don't know, theme of like like a horror or like a criminal theme or something that make it like I don't know. It's a weird it's a weird program. Okay. Since you mentioned that and since I thought you were gonna say check and recheck, <laughs> um, I was like, how come nowadays they don't do check and recheck anymore? They just they don't do fact checking anymore. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and like back in the day we literally had a show. I don't know how much fact checking they did on that show, but they called it check and recheck. They, they don't do so I think TV they don't check and do check and recheck anymore. Now they're they're like compiling content from TikTok and Instagram and make that like as a content, which is like useless. Like the most fa- cute five, uh, the most cute, fi- ah, <laughs> the most cute five cats video on TikTok like that. I mean, it's like people that have their phone, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, thanks for listening. And until our next feast, this is Ruth. And this is Alexandra. Alexandra.